Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Sarah, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through The Stand. As always, I hope that you are all staying safe and healthy. We're a few days away, five days away from May, which is awesome, but also not because we're still stuck at home. (laughs) Uh, March felt like it took about half a year to get through. April seemed to fly by way too quickly. We have word in Ohio that schools will finish the year remotely, so that's fun. (laughs) Um, But before I start to go off into a crazed, quarantined ramble, um, let's just get into this episode. (laughs) To recap, last week in Chapter 49... Larry's group had picked up several more survivors, including a man named Judge Ferris. Larry and Lucy have become an item, although Lucy is aware that Larry is in love with Nadine. Lucy feels as though Nadine is unraveling, and Larry reluctantly agrees with her. Nadine, on the other hand, is fighting conflicting feelings about what she wants and what she's destined for. We learn that she is meant for Randall Flagg, and while she desires him, she's also scared of him. Nadine thinks that perhaps Boulder and Mother Abigail may be her last remaining hope to fight the urge to go west. This week in chapter 50, we get four sections. The beginning of the chapter opens with Glenn and Stu. They have stayed up all night drinking, about halfway up Flagstaff Mountain in Boulder, They're watching the sunrise, and Stu is eager to know what Glenn thinks is going to happen next. Glenn believes there will be a society, though it's impossible to say what kind, depending on how many people eventually arrive in Boulder. Glenn seems to think that the numbers will keep growing, probably well into the thousands and hundreds of thousands and maybe even a million people. After taking into consideration... Uh, the remaining population who will go west and who will succumb to various illness or accidents, especially during the winter time, and especially given the fact that the free zone still does not have a proper doctor. All they have is Mother Abigail and a veterinarian in Dick Ellis. Boulder wouldn't be able to hold that many people, of course, but that only means that they would have to expand into smaller communities around them. Glenn believes they would get more people than Vegas. He hopes that they would get more people than Vegas because he likes to believe that most people are good and whoever is running Vegas is bad. Glenn also believes that Flag will get most of the techies as he thinks that they like to work in an atmosphere of tight discipline and linear goals. If there are any techies out there listening to this, I really want to know if that's actually true. Glenn has started to refer to Flag as the adversary, and I actually kind of like that. Um, you know, we hear Randall Flag is usually the man with no face or the dark man or the walking dude. I don't know. I kind of like the adversary. I don't think that gets enough attention when describing uh, Randall Flag. And Glenn thinks that Flag wants the men who can get things working, and that makes complete and total sense. 
but he also wants the men who can dust off those Idaho missile silos to get them working again. Same with the tanks and the helicopters. Glenn does not think that flag has gotten that far yet, but he's probably working on it. And right now he's getting the power back on. He's reestablishing communications, everything that Boulder is not doing. Glenn admits to Stu that he does get scared at night, but not because of bad dreams anymore, but because he thinks about them over on the other side of the Rockies, busy as little bees. Stu wants to know what they need to be doing in Boulder. He even has brought a notepad up with him on the mountain to take notes. And he knows that they can't just sit around doing nothing day in and day out. Glenn doesn't think Flag will attack tomorrow, but maybe next spring. And it doesn't bode well for those in Boulder, which is why Stu wants to get a move on with things now. Glenn thinks they need to reestablish America. Little America. Organization and government. He suggests calling a meeting in a week, around August 18th, and a committee of seven to create an agenda for the meeting. Glenn believes a reading and ratification of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and Bill of Rights is necessary. Stu protests a little, because after all, we're all Americans, but Glenn points out that we're not. Right now, they're nothing more than survivors without a government. He says, We're a hodgepodge collection from every age group, religious group, class group, and racial group. Government is an idea, Stu. That's really all it is, once you strip away the bureaucracy and the bullshit. I'll go further. It's an inculcation, nothing but a memory path worn through the brain. What we've got going for us now is culture lag. Most of these people still believe in government by representation, the republic, what they think of as a democracy. But culture lag never lasts long. After a while, they'll start having the gut reactions. The president is dead. The Pentagon is for rent. Nobody is debating anything in the House and the Senate, except maybe for the termites and the cockroaches. Our people here are very soon going to wake up to the fact that the old ways are gone and that they can restructure society any old way they want. We want, we need to catch them before they wake up and do something nutty. If someone stood up at the August 18th meeting and proposed that Mother Abigail be put in absolute charge with you and me and that fellow Andrew, says her advisors, those people would pass the item by acclamation, blissfully unaware that they had just voted the first operating American dictatorship into power since Huey Long. It's important to recreate America as long as they're operating under the threat of the adversary. They should run the government like a New England township. Instead of selectmen, they have seven representatives, the free zone representatives. Glenn says they should see to it that the same people who are on the ad hoc committee are elected to be representatives. They handpick people to nominate them and then second the nomination. It's pretty slick, and Stu agrees. Glenn responds, if you want to short-circuit the democratic process, ask a sociologist. Glenn and Stu debate how much power Mother Abigail should have. Absolute veto power? She's the one that everyone has in common. People love the source of trust and comfort, and that's Abigail. They can make it clear that she's the leader in name only. Glenn thinks that's how she'd want it, but Stu points out that she sees the problem of the dark man as a religious crusade. But Glenn says he cannot accept that they're all pawns in some post-apocalyptic game of good and evil. Stu thinks she would have veto power but also the power to propose as well as dispose. Her ideas would have to be ratified by the representatives. 
Abigail can't just be a figurehead. Abigail thinks she's being directed by God. They may very well end up living in a theocracy. The next section of chapter 50 brings us to Mother Abigail. She's sitting on the screened porch of her new home in Boulder. It is definitely flashier than her little shack in Hemingford Home, but really, her home in Nebraska was much more useful and prepared for their current situation than the home she sleeps in now. What good did a washer or dryer or indoor plumbing do when the power was out? It was pretty eye-opening to realize just how much one depended on electricity, especially when it was unavailable. Abigail knew they would get the power on eventually. It was one of the things that God had shown her in her dreams. She knew quite a bit of what was to come, not only from her dreams, but from common sense. She knew eventually everybody would stop running around and start pulling together. The curse and blessing of the human race was its chumminess. Why, if six people went floating down the Mississippi on a church roof in a flood, they'd start a bingo game as soon as the roof grounded on a sandbar. Abigail knew they would want to form a government of some kind and probably want to run that government around her, which she could not allow. That wouldn't be God's will. Yes, let them get the power back on. Let's get the gas running so they wouldn't freeze their asses off in wintertime. Let them pass their resolutions and make their plans. She would keep her nose out of it, although she would insist that Nick have a part in running it, and probably Ralph. She supposed Stu the Texan was all right. He knew enough to shut off his mouth when his brains weren't running. They might even want Harold, and she would not stop that, but Mother Abigail does not like Harold. He made her nervous, grinning all the time, but the grin never touched his eyes. She thought that Harold had some kind of secret, some smelly, nasty thing all wrapped up in a stinking poultice in the middle of his heart. She had no idea what it might be. It was not God's will for her to see that, so it must not matter to his plan for this community. All the same, it troubled her to think that Fat Boy might be a part of their high councils, but she would say nothing. Her business, she thought rather complacently in her rocker, her place in their councils and deliberations had only to do with the Dark Man. Abigail knew the Dark Man called himself Flag. He was already working, but she didn't know his plans. All she knew was that his goal was to destroy all of them. People came to Boulder to see her, to tell her that they had dreamed of her and of him. They wanted to be soothed and comforted because they were terrified of him. Privately, Abigail knew they wouldn't know Flag if they met him on the street. He didn't have six eyes or spiked horns growing out of his temple. He might look like the man who had used to bring them milk or the mail. She guessed that behind the conscious evil, there was an unconscious blackness. That was what distinguished the Earth's children of darkness. They couldn't make things, but only break them. God, the Creator, had made man in his own image, and that meant that every man and woman who dwelt under God's light was a creator of some kind, a person with an urge to stretch out his hand and shape the world into some rational pattern. The black man wanted was able only to unshape. Antichrist? You might as well say anti-creation. Yes, he would have his followers. He was a liar, and his father was the father of lies. His kingdom would never be one of peace. The sentry posts and barbed wire at the frontiers of his land would be there to keep the converts in as much as to keep the invaders out. Abigail has no idea if he would win or not. God worked discreetly, of course, and in the ways that pleased him. Thy will be done. 
Ralph Brentner approaches Abigail then with news that a new group has arrived. They want to say hello to Mother Abigail. The man in charge, Ralph describes as one of those long hairs, <laughs> but his name is Underwood. Abigail says to bring them in, but asks where Nick has been. Ralph explains that Nick is out at the reservoir with Brad Kitchener, taking a look at the power plant. Mother Abigail quite likes Ralph. He was a simple soul, but canny. He was a good sort to have around when things weren't going just right, and the type of man who always somehow ended up on relief when times were flush for just about everyone else. Ralph also explains that Stu came by to talk to Nick about joining some kind of committee. Nick said it was fine by him if it was fine by Mother Abigail, and Abigail doesn't know what an old lady like herself might have to say about such things. But Ralph says there's quite a bit because she is the reason they're there, and they'll do whatever she wants. What she wants is to go on living free like she always has, like an American. She just wants her say when it's time for her to have it, like an American. Ralph assures her that she'll have all of that, and the rest of them feel that way too. Nick and Stu want Ralph to print 700 flyers announcing the meeting. Mother Abigail tells him to make it a thousand. As Larry's group makes their way through the gate, Mother Abigail felt her sin. The father of sin was theft. Every one of the Ten Commandments boiled down to thou shalt not steal. Murder was the theft of a life. Adultery the theft of a wife. Covetousness, the secret slinking theft that took place in the cave of the heart. Blasphemy was the theft of God's name. Swiped from the house of the Lord and sent out to walk the streets like a strutting whore. She had never been much of a thief, a minor pilferer from time to time at its worst. The mother of sin was pride. Abigail had always been a proud woman, but pride had not made her life. Pride was the curse of will, and like a woman, pride had its wiles. And when they filed through the gate, she thought, It's me they've come to see. And on the heels of that sin, a series of blasphemous metaphors, rising unbidden in her mind, how they filed through one by one like communicants, their young leader with his eyes mostly cast down, a light-haired woman by his side, a little boy just behind him with a dark-eyed woman whose black hair was shot with twists of gray, the others behind them in a line. Larry introduces himself to her, and he says that he's dreamed of her. He went back down the steps, shoulders hunched. He would unwind, she thought, now that he was here, and when he found out, he didn't have to take the whole weight of the world on his shoulders. A man who doubts himself shouldn't have to try too hard for too long, not until he's seasoned. And this man, Larry Underwood, was still a little green and apt to bend. But she liked him. Lucy approaches next, shyly, wanting to know how old Mother Abigail really was. Mother Abigail responds 108, last she counted. Nadine and Joe come next. Nadine looked at Mother Abigail unflinchingly. Joe's face was filled with wonder. It's an interesting first impression that they make on each other. Mother Abigail thinks he's here in the shape of this woman, but she tells herself it's just a woman and not him. For Nadine, the moment is full of confusion. She had been okay up until Larry had begun to talk to Abigail, and then Nadine had become overwhelmed with a swooning sense of revulsion and terror. The woman could see. Nadine was worried that she could see inside of her to where the darkness was already planted and growing well. 
She was afraid the old woman would rise from her place on the porch and denounce her, demand that she leave Joe and go to those, to him, for whom she was intended. The women looked at each other, measuring. Abigail thinks, he's in her, the devil's imp. And Nadine thinks, all of their power is right here. She's all they've got, although they may think differently. Nadine introduces herself and Abigail responds with, I know who you are. The words hang in the air and the others turn to watch this encounter unfold. Nadine moves Joe in front of her as if he's the only source of her protection. Nadine introduces Joe and asks Abigail if she knows him as well. Abigail says she doesn't think Joe is his name any more than Cassandra is hers. If she doesn't think Nadine is his mama. She asks Joe what his name is, and Nadine insists that he won't tell her. He can't. She doesn't think he even remembers, but Joe cries out, Leo. Leo Rockway. He's Leo. He hugs Mother Abigail tight, laughing. Nadine tells Joe to come away from Abigail. She's old, and he'll hurt her. Joe resists, which angers Nadine. It's like a face-off between these two over Joe. Abigail's eyes seem to say, I know you. And Nadine's answers, yes, and I know you. Nadine finally calls for Joe, or Leo, whatever he wants to be called, to come away. And he does. Abigail tells him to come see her whenever he'd like. But that invitation does not seem to extend to Nadine. Nadine's face was stony. She didn't speak. As they went back down the porch steps, the arm Nadine had around his shoulders seemed more like a drag chain than a comfort. Mother Abigail watched them go, aware that she was losing the focus again. With the woman's face out of her sight, the sense of revelation began to grow fuzzy. She became unsure of what she had felt. She was only another woman, surely, wasn't she? Abigail is full of confusion over the encounter. It's like the knowledge of something important is right there, being shown to her. She thinks, I was sitting here complacently, waiting to be kowtowed to. Yes, that's what I was doing, no use denying it. And now that woman has come and something has happened and I'm losing what it was. But there was something about that woman, wasn't there? Are you sure? Are you sure? Before she can truly know what Nadine's purpose was, Mark Zellman approaches and distracts her from her thoughts. There are many others who introduce themselves. All of that and the feeling fading now, and it would be entirely gone by nightfall, that she had missed something of great significance and might later be very sorry. We then turn to Nick Andros, who is at home, one that he shares with Ralph and Ralph's new lady, Elise. He has his own space in the fully furnished and finished basement, complete with a door that leads in and out as well. Nick is writing because he always thought better when he wrote, and the house he settled into was a beautiful one and no doubt expensive. But the owner and the family had been mysteriously absent when they arrived. There were corpses here, yes, thousands of them, and something was going to have to be done about them before the hot, dry days ended and the fall rains began, causing quicker decomposition and possible disease. But there were not enough corpses. Nick wondered if anyone other than he and Stu Redmond had noticed it. Louder, maybe. Louder noticed everything. For every house or public building you found littered with corpses, there were ten others completely empty. Sometime during the last spasm of the plague, most of Boulder's citizens, sick or well, had blown town. Why? Well, he supposed it didn't really matter, and maybe they would never know. 
The awesome fact remained that Mother Abigail, sight unseen, had managed to lead them to maybe the one small city in the United States that had been cleared of plague victims. It was enough to make even an agnostic like himself wonder where she was getting her information. Nick is enjoying his time in Boulder. He's been collecting books and writing, mostly his thoughts, but part shopping lists. Nick is thinking of the power plant and how getting it running again was the key to keeping people put. Given the kind of winter that Boulder would experience, people would stay if there was heat in the homes that they moved into. If there wasn't, he was afraid people would slip away at the first cold snap. No amount of meetings and ratifications could stop that. There didn't seem to be much wrong with the power plant, and Ralph and Brad seemed to think they could have the lights on again by Labor Day. Law and order was something else on Nick's mind. Could Stu Redmond be handed that package? Nick didn't want the job, the job of leadership. He felt like he could persuade Stu to take it. It hurt Nick to think that they would probably need jails and courts, maybe even an executioner. These were Mother Abigail's people, though, not the Dark Man's. But he supposed the Dark Man would not bother with such trivialities as courts and jails. His punishment would be swift and sure and heavy. He would not need the threat of jail when the corpses hung on the telephone pole crosses along 115 for the birds to pick. Nick hoped that the infractions would be small. They had already had cases of drunk and disorderly, but no one felt like they had the authority to stop it. Nick wrote down authority and organization in his notebook, circling them both. What a sorry sound they made. Ralph arrived soon after to tell him about Larry's group arriving, and Nick is happy. He believes that eventually they'll get a doctor, now that they have a nurse and Lord Constable. Ralph thinks Larry is a good man, smart and sharp as a tack. Larry is the kind of man Nick said they should look out for. He asks the right questions. Who's in charge? What comes next? And who does it? Ralph has the flyers for the meeting to nominate and elect a representative board. The ad hoc committee includes Nick, Glenn, Ralph, Dick Ellis, Fran, Stu, and Susan Stern. Ralph doesn't know that he belongs on an ad hoc committee. He's not much of an idea man. Nick points out that it was Ralph's idea to get the CB radio to reach people. Ralph is a bit modest. He doesn't think that that's the same thing. And maybe they ought to give his spot to Larry. Nick shakes his head. He has plenty of faith in Ralph. Ralph says goodnight and heads upstairs, and Nick thinks about how he deliberately struck Harold Lauder's name from the committee list. He wasn't sure how the others would take it. If he had to even it out, he would give them Ralph. Nick felt like Stu and Glenn had already packed the committee with their friends, and if Nick wanted Harold out, well, they would just have to deal with it. It wasn't entirely because Stu and Glenn were trying to hog what was really his football, but he and Ralph and Mother Abigail had essentially founded the Boulder Free Zone. But with Harold, Nick simply didn't trust him. He smiles all the time, and there's a watertight compartment between his mouth and his eyes. Harold struck Nick as unstable. Nick thinks, mostly it's that grin. I don't want to have to share secrets with anyone who grins like that and looks as if he isn't sleeping well at night. No louder. They'll have to go along with that. Nick closes his binder of notes and decides to take a shower, feeling obscurely dirty. The world, he thought, not according to Garp, but according to the superflu. This brave new world, but it didn't seem particularly brave to him. 
or particularly new. It was as if someone had put a large cherry bomb into a child's toy box. There had been a big bang and everything had gone everywhere. Toys had scattered from one end of the playroom to the other. Some things were shattered beyond repair. Other things would be fixable, but most of the stuff had just been scattered. Those things were still a little too hot to handle, but they would be fine once they had cooled off. The job now was to sort things out. Nick is overcome by the feeling that he had joined some bizarre sewing circle of the human spirit. They each had a needle and were working together to make a warm blanket to keep off the winter chill, or maybe they had only, after a brief pause, begun once again to make a large shroud for the human race, beginning their work at the toes and working their way up. Leaving Nick, we are met with Fran, who is standing on the balcony outside of her apartment with Stu. They lived in a building downtown on the third floor. Stu is sleeping inside, and she was starting to show in her pregnancy. Earlier, Stu told her that he had discussed the baby with Glenn, and Glenn had cautiously suggested that the superflu germ might still be around. And if it was, the baby could die. It was an unsettling thought, but if the mother was immune, surely the baby could be. Yet plenty of people in Boulder had lost children to the plague. So if babies weren't immune, that could just mean that the people there were just an epilogue to the human race, a brief coda. Fran sees somebody coming up the street, carrying something that was either a bottle or a gun with a long barrel. He stops in front of their building as if trying to decide whether or not to knock. She was standing less than 20 feet above his head, and when he looked up, she clearly startles him and he falls back onto his ass. Franny is startled as well, and of course starts to giggle. She steps back into some pottery, which falls over and crashes, but it doesn't wake Stu. The man below calls up to her, and Franny hurries downstairs to keep him from knocking and waking up Stu. The man introduces himself as Larry Underwood. He came by to find Harold Louder. He had been told that Harold lived at the same apartment building as Stu Redman and Fran Goldsmith. Fran explains that he had been in the building, but moved to the west side of town. Larry has a bottle of wine in his hand for Harold, along with payday bars, and he starts to explain to Fran how he knew Harold, how he had lost his mom and then Rita, and how he had found Nadine and Joe, and then how they ended up in a gunquit and saw the barn with Harold's message. They followed Harold's directions and found Lucy, who Larry explains now is his woman, and that they should meet sometime. Larry talks about how their group expanded, and Larry was sort of put into a leadership role. It wasn't something that he had wanted, but he did it. Larry mentions the carving on the beam in the barn, the HL loves FG, as we know, but Fran asks what carving he's talking about, and Larry seems to realize that she doesn't know about it. So he quickly amends it to just Harold's initials. Essentially, anytime Larry came upon a problem, he thought, what would Harold do? All of this astounds Fran because she knows a very different Harold, and to hear about him from the view of someone else is startling. Larry was reminding her of the things she had forgotten or taken for granted. Harold risking his life to put her name on the barn, getting gas from the tanks for their motorcycles, something had, that had been a major issue for Larry, but Harold had done it quite easily. They all more or less assumed that Harold was nothing but a grinning supernumerary but Harold had turned quite a few tricks in the last six weeks. 
Had she been so much in love with Stu that it took this total stranger to point out some home truths about Harold? What made the feeling even more uncomfortable was the fact that once he had gotten his feet under him, Harold had been completely adult about herself and Stuart. Larry explains that they took Harold's directions from Stovington to Hemingford home, just to see Abigail's home from the dreams, even though they knew that she had since moved on. Fran is simply dumbfounded. What would his reaction be when he finally met Harold? Fran points out that all of the solutions Larry came up with were his own, not Harold's because Harold was not there. But Larry explains that Harold was in his head, and he kind of thought Harold would be Fran's man. Fran says no, and Larry asks if he was wrong about Harold. Fran explains that Larry's descriptions make her feel as though she's treated Harold poorly, but she can't be blamed for not loving him. She can't be blamed for loving Stu instead. Fran blurts out that Harold has changed. She doesn't know how or why, but it scares her. Larry's a bit taken aback, but Fran gives Larry directions to Harold's place, and they part ways. Fran goes back to bed and thinks, how is she supposed to tell this Larry, who seems so nice in his strangely lost way, but weren't they all lost now, that Harold Lauder was fat and juvenile and lost himself? Was she supposed to tell him that one day, not so long ago, she had happened upon wise Harold, resourceful Harold, what would Jesus do Harold, mowing the back lawn in his bathing suit and weeping? Was she supposed to tell him that the sometimes sulky, often frightened Harold, that had come to Boulder from a gunquit had turned into a stout politician, a backslapper, a hail-fellow-well-met kind of guy, who nonetheless looked at you with the flat and unsmiling eyes of a Gila monster. As she's thinking of this, Fran feels the baby move inside of her. It's a monumental moment because it means her baby is alive, and Harold and Larry are soon forgotten. And last, but not least, we visit Harold who is sitting in a chair on the lawn of his little house. Harold has laid off the candy, clearing up his acne. With all the walking he's done, he's also lost quite a bit of weight, and his hair is growing out. He's starting to feel like a new person. Harold has his own journal now, one that says Ledger on the cover, and he's filled in the first 60 pages. No paragraphs, just solid blocks of writing, an outpouring of his hate. He hadn't thought that he had had so much hate in him. He knew he would be leaving Boulder soon, a month or two, no more. Then he would head west. When he got there, he would tell them all about Boulder, what went on in the meetings, both private and public. Harold was sure to be on the Free Zone Committee, and he would be welcomed and rewarded by the man in charge out west. He and Flagg would kick this miserable settlement apart. But first, Harold would settle with Redmond, who had lied and stolen Fran from him. Harold, of course, still feels betrayed. In that hour or instant, he became aware that he could simply accept what was, and that knowledge had both exhilarated and terrified him. For that space of time, he knew he could turn himself into a new person, a fresh Harold Louder, cloned from the old one by the sharp intervening knife of the superflu epidemic. He sensed, more clearly than any of the others, that that was what the Boulder Free Zone was all about. People were not the same as they had been. This small-town society was like no other in American pre-plague society. They didn't see it because they didn't stand outside the boundaries as he did. Men and women were living together with no apparent desire to reinstitute the ceremony of marriage. 
Whole groups of people were living together in small sub-communities like communes. There wasn't much fighting. People seemed to be getting along. And strangest of all, none of them seemed to be questioning the profound theological implications of the dreams and of the plague itself. Boulder itself was a cloned society, a tabula so rasa that it could not sense its own novel beauty. Harold sensed it and hated it. In the free zone, he could only be Harold Louder. Over there in Vegas, he could be a prince. Harold writes something new in his ledger. August 12, 1990, early morning. It is said that the two great human sins are pride and hate. Are they? I like to think of them as the two great virtues. To give away pride and hate is to say you will change for the good of the world. To embrace them, to vent them, is more noble. That is to say that the world must change for the good of you. I am on a great adventure. He closed the book. He went into the house, put the book in its hole in the hearth, and carefully replaced the hearthstone. He went into the bathroom, set his Coleman lamp on the sink so that it illuminated the mirror, and for the next 15 minutes, he practiced smiling. He was getting very good at it. Okay, creepy Harold. (laughs) But a lot happens in this chapter. First, we learn from Glenn how he thinks society will reform. Their numbers will continue to grow, so it's better to have some form of government in place before so many people arrive that it causes problems. Glenn figures that they can create an ad hoc committee of seven people, and they manage it that those seven people are also voted in to the Free Zone representatives. Um, That's a bit shady. (laughs) Not entirely fair, um, maybe to push their own agenda, their own people, um, into such important positions, but... Looking at it from Glenn's point of view, you can't really blame him. Um, Who else would they trust to do that? I think the only reason they're probably even including Nick and Glenn or Nick and Ralph is because Mother Abigail would insist on it. But they might also have respect for Nick and Ralph. So I can't really make that speculation. Glenn is also aware of what Flag is doing. The adversary, at least he thinks he knows what he's up to, bringing in the techies, getting the power up and running, finding those who can dust off those missiles. Glenn believes that maybe next spring, in May, if Boulder doesn't get their shit together, they could be sitting ducks when Flag comes after them, which he will. And now it's time to push forward and stop digging around, because Flag is already working, giving him an advantage. Mother Abigail <clears throat> seems to be settling into her new life okay. She has all the conveniences of modern living, and yet she can't use any of them without electricity. But she's not worried, because she knows that they will get the power on. God told her so. We learn that she knows that Flag plans on destroying them, although she doesn't know um, directly how. We also know that she's thinking along the same lines as Glenn in terms of how to reform a proper society. She knows they would want her involved, but to her, that wouldn't be God's will. And she's okay with whoever they choose to put on a board of representatives, even Harold Louder, who she doesn't like. She feels like he's carrying a secret, although she doesn't know what that is any more than she knows what Flag is planning. As people are drawn to Boulder, they're drawn to Mother Abigail, and for good reason. They've been dreaming of her for a long time. Larry's group arrives, and Abigail is aware of her own sin of pride, because they're there to see her. And it seems like she's enjoying the attention, even if it tires her out at times, and knowing that she's enjoying the fact that people are there for her, um, she finds to be sinful. 
I was really waiting to see how Abigail and Nadine would take to each other. And it felt like a very tense, unspoken face-off. Abigail can sense flag inside of Nadine, but she also wonders if she's just tired and imagining things. But there's absolutely something about Nadine that puts Abigail off. Nadine feels terror and revulsion at Abigail, terror that maybe Abigail can see inside of her and know that Flag has touched her. In the last chapter with Nadine, she was hoping maybe Boulder and the old woman would be like her last hope, but she doesn't really feel warm or awestruck in front of Abigail at all. Um, Joe acts like kind of a buffer between them, um, and Joe is very taken with Abigail. Abigail's even able to draw out Joe's real name, which none of the others had been able to do. And from now on, Joe will be known as Leo, Leo Rockway. Rather than be thrilled with this, Nadine is angry. There's an unspoken understanding here now between Abigail and Nadine. They both know who the other is, and that feels ominous. Nadine quickly takes Joe, Leo, and she leaves, ignoring Larry, who asks why she behaved that way. I mean, could you be any more obvious, Nadine? Come on. (laughs) Like, at least pretend. But she's not Harold. She's not, you know, embracing her villainous nature the way Harold seems to be doing. So maybe Nadine was expecting something different when she met Abigail. Maybe she was expecting to feel that warmth and that optimism that maybe she could stay in Boulder and be happy. But maybe the fact that uh, Abigail scares her Maybe Abigail will know that Flag has touched her and maybe Nadine's just shit out of luck in Boulder. Who knows? Abigail seems to know that there's something wrong with Nadine. And it seems like there's a voice inside of her head trying to tell her exactly what it is. But there are too many people to meet and speak to and her train of thought is broken. And that may prove to be consequential later. So we learn that Nick is living with Ralph and Ralph's woman, Elise. And where's Tom? Where's Tom Collin? Who is he living with? Tom and Nick, to me, were like two peas in a pod. So it's very odd to me that he's not living with Nick or at least in the same house. So where's Tom? (laughs) This is a question I need answering. Nick seems focused on what's coming next. Organization, authority, politics. He hates to think that they're going to need jail soon, but it's inevitable. Um, despite what they've all been through, humans are still humans. You like to think that they could all live peacefully, but that's not human nature. It's just not. I don't think that it's as black and white as, you know, the evil goes west and the good stays in Boulder. I think people are complicated creatures and there needs to be a way to put laws into place to keep others safe and in line. To an extent, of course. Nick is taking a leadership role here, but he wants the majority of that to go to someone else probably Stu. Nick has had Ralph print flyers for the ad hoc meeting, and he took the initiative to take Harold's name off. And that is a bold move. But Harold or Nick does not trust Harold. Um, And he seems to be a good judge of character. We already know that. Plus, Stu and Glenn have put a lot of their own people on the list. Um, Looking at it, everybody but Ralph, uh, Dick Ellis and Nick are from Stu's party. Honestly, I don't doubt, I don't think that Stu, Glenn, or Fran will mind Harold not being involved. I I do like um, Fran. I do enjoy Fran quite a bit. I'm not sure why she would be on the ad hoc meeting um, committee. 
I don't know that she really has that leadership role inside of her the way that even Stu and Glenn and Nick do. Looking back at some of the chapters she's been in, she's kind of a follower. Um, she does she goes along with things, and that's fine. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Fran. I just not entirely sure why they would have included her on such an important board, I guess. But maybe that will come into play later. I don't know. I don't I don't think she should be on there. But anyway. <laughs> so the, those guys, I mean, they tolerate Harold, but I don't think that they trust him either. And Harold shouldn't be involved in making decisions here that affect everyone. So Nick is flexing his own authority, which I really enjoy. I like seeing him take that kind of initiative, that leadership role to say, no, you're not going to be doing this. He seems to be in line with Abigail. Abigail doesn't like Harold either, but she does trust Nick. And Nick has shown time and again why. It's very telling, though, that Nick is worried that they're only delaying the inevitable, that maybe their committee is just sewing together a new shroud for the remaining civilization. Fran and Stu are living together in an apartment in downtown Boulder. Fran's pregnancy is showing, but obviously there is worry that the baby could die after birth because, you know, Captain Trips is still lingering. There's no assurance that the virus is gone. Fran hopes that being immune means the baby could be immune, but they won't know that until the baby is born. If the baby dies, that doesn't bode well for the future of the human race. If they can't repopulate, then whoever is left is basically it. That's the end of human civilization. It's such a sad thing to think about, um, and no doubt a terrifying one, especially for Fran. There are all these possible outcomes for the survivors, and so far, not many of them are promising. What happens to society when they all realize that there's no way or there's a very slim possibility of repopulating the world? If you can't do that, where does that where does your mental capacity go? What are you thinking? How are you going to behave? Does law and order mean anything anymore? What's the point? I'm not sure, but it's really depressing to think about it. Larry and Fran are finally able to meet. After 49 chapters, this is really fun for me to read. Um, Larry has been following Harold's direction since the gun quit, so their stories have kind of been tied together indirectly. And Larry's been depending on Harold so much that he took to thinking, you know, what would Harold do? Uh, kind of based off of what would Jesus do, which is hilarious. Um, but Larry seems so excited to meet Harold, and it's like he holds him up on this pedestal, and <laughs> Fran is just like, what? <laughs> she's stunned, and she's dumbfounded, and honestly, I am too, because that's not the Harold that she knows. Or maybe she's just forgotten the things that Harold did for her and for them and for the people, like Larry, who depended on Harold's instruction. Fran is wondering what Larry will think when he meets Harold. And, you know, I kind of rolled my eyes at this because, okay, what will Larry think of Harold when he sees he's fat? Like, I get the rest of it. But who cares what Harold looks like? Like, we know Larry has a certain view of Harold in his head. We saw that um, several chapters ago, but that shouldn't matter. Obviously, people never look the way that we see them in their minds when we just have this image of them. I listen to podcasts all the time, and I have mental images of what the people, what the hosts look like, um, unless I purposely go online to like find a picture of them or go to their website and see a picture. They never, never look the way I think they will. 
So I kind of see that as, you know, with Larry and Harold, it, how he looks shouldn't matter. I don't care that Harold's fat, but that always seems to be kind of one of King's, like, that's a negative trait in Harold. It's not that he's pretentious. It's not that he's full of himself or he's arrogant um, or maybe psychopathic in a way. It's he's fat, guys. That shouldn't be part of it. It kind of annoys me, to be honest, every time they call him a fat boy. But anyway, so obviously I think that Larry might be turned off more by the fact that Harold has this condescending attitude. And it seems like Harold's constant smiling is a turnoff for a lot of people because they sense he's not being sincere. And I'm sure all of us have seen somebody smile or be in a good mood and it just feels kind of phony. So I kind of feel like that's what Harold's doing here. I did like Larry's discussion with Fran here. How he told her his story so matter-of-factly with a bit of humor. And Fran just doesn't seem to know what to do about any of it. She doesn't want to dampen Larry's view of Harold, but she thinks that Larry ought to know that Harold has changed. And it's not the Harold from a gunquit anymore. This is almost like a matter of never meet your heroes. It's probably not how Larry imagined this talk would go, but that's life. It's unexpected. And I really can't wait to see Larry's first, okay, second impression of Harold. But she gives Larry Harold's address and they part ways. And of course, Fran then feels the baby kick for the first time. And that gives her a lot of hope because that proves that the baby right now is still alive. And lastly, Harold. He has been living in the same apartment building as Stu and Fran, uh, but moved to a small house on the west side of town, which is probably for the best, given his state of mind. He's keeping a journal, and of course it's not a journal, it's a ledger, because that sounds as pretentious as he is. Inside, he's filling the pages with his hatred of everybody around him. He does have plans to go west now, to become a prince in Vegas, and to tell everybody about Boulder. Knowing what we know about Flag, I don't see that happening, but whatever. Um, Harold believes that he and Flag will come back to Boulder and decimate it. He believes he'll be on the Free Zone Committee. So, ha, <laughs> he has no idea that Nick has sort of um, taken away that possibility, especially if Glenn plans on sneaking away to get the ad hoc committee voted into the Free Zone Representatives Committee. That would leave Harold off of it, which will probably piss him off more because everything does. And he's still caught up in thinking that Stu stole Fran from him. And I have to remind myself that Harold is a teenager. He was 17 when he um, and Fran left a gun quit. Unless he had a birthday, he's still 17. So he may be smart intellectually, but he's still very immature emotionally. Maybe he would have been lured west anyway, but it seems so much of his hatred stems from Fran and Stu. And it's just like, God, get over it. Get over it, Harold. It feels like he could have a place in Boulder, one with respect. And who knows, maybe he could find love there too, if that's important to him. But there's just something about him that is so off-putting. And after writing in his ledger, he goes inside to practice smiling in the mirror. He needs to get better at it because a lot of people are not convinced. So all of our main characters have finally settled in Boulder or Vegas. And in Boulder, there are two people who have ties to flag or they feel tied to flag. Harold and Nadine. Harold clearly has plans for leaving and taking out Boulder. Or at least do before he does. But what about Nadine? What does she plan to do now? And can she be saved? I liked this chapter a lot. 
being able to see so many of our characters interacting finally after nearly half of the book. Their interactions are really interesting to me. It's kind of like, you know, we've gotten so attached to all these people on various parts uh, in various parts of the country finally coming together and becoming this new society. I don't know. I really enjoyed it. It's so interesting. I loved seeing Larry and Fran talk to each other. I loved seeing Nadine and Mother Abigail meet. Um, I do love Stu and Glenn. I love my how many times do I say love? Guys, started no, I'm not gonna say start a drinking game again. I'm not gonna do that. So <laughs> But I did. I really enjoyed this. I can't wait to see what's coming next. And there's more to be had because we know Larry's going to finally meet Harold. And of course, what's gonna happen with Larry and Stu, Fran and Lucy, and we'll see that and more in chapter fifty one. I do just want to make a quick announcement that I will be taking next week off, so there will be no new episode on May 2nd. Um, I hadn't planned on taking it, but with schools going remotely and I'm working from home, um, my husband's still out working, so it's just me and the girls during the day, which is can get a little overwhelming sometimes. And Ohio's stay-at-home order is supposed to, I don't want to say lift on May 1st, but they're going to announce either you know, lifting restrictions or pushing it again to June 1st. I'm not sure yet. So I think I just need a mental health break for one weekend to kind of just relax and take care of myself. So I'm going to take next week off, but there will be the new episode, Chapter 51, on May 9th. Um, I hope everybody understands uh, and is okay with that. (laughs) That being said, I do appreciate um, all of the emails, and I've gotten quite a few private messages on Twitter about the podcast. And I'm so happy that so many of you are finding um, comfort in the podcast. Um, I'm so happy that I'm able to uh, supply you with some kind of distraction during these uncertain times. So thank you to everybody who's reached out to me. I really do appreciate it. And if you are enjoying the podcast, I would appreciate uh, it if you wanted to leave a rating review on Apple Podcasts. I really do enjoy all the reviews I get. I read all of them. I appreciate every single rating. You guys don't know how much they mean to me. They certainly help uh, get the podcast noticed. So thank you guys for that so much. And I hope that you all stay um, safe. I hope that you all stay healthy. And hopefully we'll get through this uh, together. And hopefully we're nearing the end of it. So hang in there. And M-O-O-N, that spells... See you in two weeks.